All right, well, good morning again, and welcome again, and once again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. We hope you're uh, blessed by our service. Uh, we're continuing our series, Living, Living Hope, this study of the book of 1 Peter. And today we're really going to get into kind of the practical side of things. Uh, we really start to look at, at some of the specific issues that the church is facing. And at the heart of it is this really difficult reality that the conviction to live differently often comes with very real consequences. When we make a commitment to a new way of living, it often makes our lives harder. Uh, this is a reality that my wife Alyssa has been uh, dealing with recently. Last summer she had uh, a minor health issue, nothing to worry about, don't ask. But in exploring those issues, she came to discover that certain types of foods uh, were really kind of causing her problems. And so for the past several months, she's gotten really strict with what she eats. And it just amazes me, especially as someone who loves food, uh, the discipline that she's had to stick with this new diet, the conviction uh, to kind of live a, a whole new way of, of, of eating and her diet. Because really, you know, there's a lot of consequences that come with this. So like, for example, she can't eat any dairy. So like she has to sit there and watch me eat pizza and cookies and ice cream and donuts and she can't enjoy any of that. She bakes Rice Krispie treats for our whole family, her favorite dessert, and me and Kai and Gray are like, oh, this is awesome, oh, sorry that you can't have any. There's even some healthy things she can't eat like leafy vegetables, apples, whole wheat bread. Um, she's really trying to limit sugar and so uh, when you combine that with the dairy thing, uh, literally the only dessert she's had in the last six months is like those dark chocolate with almond bars from Trader Joe's. That's it. I mean, it's okay. I mean, they're $1.99 for three bars, so it's actually a pretty good dessert, <laughs> but it's a bummer. This is hard living. Now, just so you know, I did offer to, to be supportive, to be a good husband and do this with her so she didn't have to watch me eat all this stuff. And I was never more relieved than when she said, no, you don't have to do it. I'm thankful every day, every meal. I love you so much that uh, I don't have to do this diet with you. Uh, but this conviction has other costs too, right? It affects where we can go eat. You know, when we go on a date night together, it affects, you know, what we order if we're going to share something. We actually went out to dinner a few months ago, and Alyssa ordered a cheeseburger with no cheese, no sauce, and no lettuce. And the waiter literally told her that he was judging her for what she ordered. There are consequences to the conviction to live difficult, differently. And the, obviously, this is a small thing. I mean, it's a big thing for her, but it's, it's relatively small. But the stronger the conviction, the more countercultural the conviction, the more against the grain this conviction is, the more severe the consequences can be. And in our series, this is really one of the big things that we've been talking about, is this reality that the believers in the early church are beginning to face the consequences of their commitment, their conviction to live holy lives. They've seen that life is harder. They have to refrain from certain behaviors. They have to make new choices in their habits, how they live. But of course, not only that, they are beginning to experience rejection, mockery, and judgment from the world around them. And so for the past four weeks, as we've kind of dived into or dove into the, the beginning two chapters of this letter, what we've seen is, is Peter really focused on the conviction 
side of things. Really kind of challenging believers, exhorting them first and foremost to remain committed to this holy way of living, to continue to pursue this new birth and new life, and to see kind of the hope that they have in that. But beginning this morning and continuing for the next few weeks, we're going to turn to the kind of middle section of the letter where Peter begins to address head-on these consequences, uh, these challenges that come with holy living. How do they understand these hardships? The questions he wants to answer for believers in the early churches, what do we do now? How do we live in light of these potential consequences? And so those are the questions that we're going to begin to answer this morning and, and, and for the next several weeks as well. And so let's go ahead and just jump right into our text. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. And we see Peter look at some very practical issues in real relationships. So 1 Peter 2, verse 13. He writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Verse 18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, long passage, I know. If you were to make a list of the best possible topics for a sermon on Mother's Day, it would probably look something like, you know, love, faith, maybe patience, wisdom, maybe look at some of the amazing women in scripture. 
But I'm guessing that at the bottom of your list, somewhere near the bottom, would be politics, slavery, and wives submitting to husbands in marriage. Yet here we are. Happy Mother's Day. Just remember, if you leave early, you don't get your cookies. So <laughs> stick with me. I'm just kidding. You can have cookies, though. But you know, this is obviously a challenging passage. These are challenging topics that we don't often address in church. And so before we really get into this, this text, before we really begin to explore it, I want to just quickly talk about the issue of interpretation in a passage like this. See, one of the things that we have to remember, right, is hopefully this goes without saying, but this book doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is not a theology textbook. This is not a how-to guide. Right? This is a letter written by a real person to real people in real-life situations. And so when Peter writes these words, he's not thinking about your life. No offense. He doesn't care about you at all. He's not thinking about how this might relate to our world with cars and TVs and social media. And so one of the things that we have to be careful of when we read a passage like this that's very specific is over-applying. We want to be careful that we don't over-apply a passage like this. These are not for all-time decrees. They're not meant to be hard and fast rules for the church to obey exactly forever. Instead, they're guidelines meant to help the church navigate their specific world and their specific situation. So, for example, when Peter talks about slaves obeying masters, right, that's a difficult passage for us. But Peter is working within the conventions of his world, and so he's not making a permanent stance on slavery uh, for all people for all times. We can't read this passage and say, see, slavery is good. Slave, you should obey your masters. Peter said so. That's not a good inter interpretation. So over-applying is a big danger. But at the same time, we also have to be cautious of under-applying a passage like this. Because ultimately, we also believe that while it's a letter written by a real person to real people, it was also inspired by the Holy Spirit. God works through these words. He inspired these words. And so there is some meaningful, for-all-time truth to be found here. And so the other danger is to not apply this at all, to say, hey, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Let's throw it out. Or this makes me uncomfortable. Let's ignore it. Or this is way too much work to understand. Let's just leave it for another time. That is just as big of a mistake. And so when we look at a passage like this, rather than over-applying or under-applying, what we want to do is focus on the larger principle. Peter is, specific, is speaking to a specific context, but there is a larger truth that we can discover and apply to our own context. So before we go any further, let's, let's just start with the principle. I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to talk about it. I'll explain it throughout the sermon. Here it is. Be the right kind of provocative. Be the right kind of provocative. Your life and faith should provoke a response a reaction, there will be consequences for living differently. So make sure that you are provocative for the right reasons and in the right way. Now, I know that's a little bit vague and mysterious, so let's unpack this passage so we can kind of understand that principle a little better. And I want to draw your attention to three important ideas from this passage that will help us understand it. And the first point is this. The context of this passage 
is the call to live good lives among the pagans. In this passage, this whole section we just read, Peter is expanding on his previous exhortation to live with a purposeful evangelistic mindset. Now, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Eric talked about the verses right before this, verses 11 and 12, right before our passage. And Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So this passage, uh, Peter is reminding believers that their primary goal in relationships with non-believers is to reveal the goodness and glory of God. To live and act in such a way that people are like, wow, man, this God guy must be pretty awesome. He must be pretty all right because these Christians, they're pretty cool. My father-in-law, Mike, told me a story this past week that kind of, I think, illustrates this point pretty well. Uh, Apparently, for the past few months, he and a group of guys in his small group have been mowing uh, this older woman's yard. Uh, If she's a widow, she was having trouble taking care of it, she couldn't afford a gardener, so they volunteered to mow her lawn every couple weeks. Or actually, their pastor volunteered them to mow the lawn, but they agreed to do it. So anyway, he was telling one of his buddies about this, a guy who he plays racquetball with, who's not a believer, and the guy was just kind of like, he just didn't understand initially. Like, and he was like, just trying to understand. Like, wait, why are you mowing this woman's lawn? Are, are, is she a, like a really close friend? Or, you know, why are you guys doing this for her? And so as Mike explained the situation, he was just so moved by it. This, this idea, as, as he explained the idea, you know, Christian community and, 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 you know, loving each other. And he was just like, listen, Mike, I, I want to be a part of this. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of this. And so he went ahead, he hired a gardener to come to her house every week to mow her lawn for her. Now, you know, this guy didn't become a Christian. He, as far as I know, hasn't started going to church. But this is part of the process that Peter is talking about. Not necessarily that we become so focused on the results, but we live in a way that we make a real impression on the non-believing world. And yes, of course, in the best case, this leads eventually to them coming to faith. But no matter what, that they at least walk away having a new idea about what God is like because they've seen it through the lens of the church's behavior. And so Peter's whole vision for our response to a hostile, non-believing world is built on this idea. That no matter how hard things get, no matter how hostile people become, this purpose cannot and should not change. So this idea of living to show people who God is, living with lifestyle evangelism, living with this purpose, this isn't just for people who we like and people who like us. It's not just for kind of our immediate circle of, you know, those those cool non-believers who are kind of curious and maybe, maybe there's a chance they come to church. This is for everyone, and this is simply how we live. There's never a persecution that's too great, never a context that's too challenging, no rejection too intense. This is always what guides us. And so as Peter then dives into these three specific situations, civil government, slavery, and marriage, he's not just beginning a brand new thought. He's not talking about these ideas randomly. Instead, he's applying this concept of purpose 
into three very relevant parts of believers' lives. Relationships that they're in. This was probably a lower class community of believers, and so they were struggling in these areas specifically. And in each situation, he's saying, this is how you interact with the non-believing world. Non-believing civil leaders, non-believing masters, non-believing husbands. In all these areas, in both the public and private sphere, live according to this purpose. Do good things. Be, live good lives so that in all your relationships, God would be glorified. So that's the context of our passage. Peter's taking this larger concept of purpose and applying it to these relationships. So what does this look like? What does he tell them to do? Well, that brings us to our second key idea from this passage. Peter's main exhortation is to submit. And if you notice, each section begins with this word. Submit yourselves to every non-believing human authority. Submit yourselves to your non-believing masters. Submit yourselves to your non-believing husbands. Now, obviously, this is a, a very loaded word. Uh, submission has some, I don't know, kind of harsh connotations in, in our culture. It doesn't matter how many sermons I hear on this or how many sermons I preach on it. Every time I hear that word, there's a little part of me that feels a little resistant. Like, Peter, man, you couldn't have used a better word. Like, i got to preach this today. But at the same time, one of the things that we have to accept and realize is that really the entire biblical ethic is built on this word. See, submission isn't an extra thing that we do for certain people. It's not a new command that Peter is giving for special, unique circumstances. Instead, submission is how we live. Consider this. Think about the Apostle Paul and kind of his model for community and faith. In Philippians, he tells us that we're supposed to be like Jesus. We should pursue Christ-likeness. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In what way? To be like a servant. To value the needs of others above our own. To lower ourselves so that others might be blessed. In Ephesians, he says, hey, just do this in all your relationships. Not just marriage, not just masters and slaves. He says, submit to one another, all of each other, out of reverence for Christ. So submission is the attitude that the entire Christian life is built upon. It's the practical outworking of love and humility and Christ-likeness. And so when Peter calls us to submit in these non-believing contexts, he's not going outside of the norm. He's not saying anything that would have seemed strange or surprising to believers. Because he's not saying submit only to these people. He's saying submit also to these people in the same way that you submit to people who you like, as people you respect, and people who are nice to you, also show the same kind of humility, love, and Christ-likeness to people who don't like you, who aren't nice to you, who are sinful and undeserving. It's a little bit like if, if my kids are struggling with like a bully at school. Say they come home and they tell me that someone is picking on them or saying mean things to them, and they ask me what I should do. Now, after I resist the urge to say, what does this kid look like? Coming to school? Just point him out to me. I would never do that. But after I resist that urge, what I'm probably going to say something is like, hey, listen, you guys. I know it's tough. I know this is difficult. But try to just continue to be kind. 
Even though they're not nice to you, be kind to them. Now, there's a context to that. My kids aren't going to be surprised when I say that. They're, they're not going to think, oh, I only have to be kind to bullies. Because ultimately, these are words that we use all the time. This is kind of the overarching ethic of our family. We've been saying this since they were too young to even be able to understand what it means. Is be kind. Be kind to each other. Be kind to your friends. Be kind to your family members. And so if I were to say that, it would just be a reminder. Hey, this is how we live. This still applies even in this difficult situation. And this is Peter's point. Continue to be submissive. Continue to pursue humility, love, Christ-likeness, even to the people who don't seem like they deserve humility, love, and Christ-likeness. Even though they're not following Jesus, even though their way of living seems completely backwards to you, everything that they're saying and doing is opposed to the way you are called to live, and it makes sense to just push away from them, he's saying, no, 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 continue to submit even to them. Because this is your purpose. Your submission has this purpose of helping you to reflect Christ. And so the question is, is how can I live humbly? How can I live for the benefit of my non-believing neighbors? And this brings us to the third and final point, and I think the key point of this passage, is the ethic Peter is working towards, the purpose of submission is to avoid conflict and promote peace. He's saying whenever possible, when it doesn't interfere with your obedience to Jesus, when it doesn't lead you to sin, be humble so that you can avoid conflict, so that you can avoid being divisive, so that you can help to bring order and peace to the world around you. See, it's not an accident that Peter brings up these three specific contexts, civil authority, slaves and masters, husbands and wives. Because in each of these, believers are facing important questions with very real implications for society at large. They're beginning to wonder, hey, you know, the Apostle Paul is over here telling me I'm free now. Uh, I'm free in Christ. I'm bound only by my obedience to God. So why should I obey these sinful human authorities? Why would I be subject to a non-believing emperor or a non-believing master or a non-believing husband? As somebody who's only bound to follow Jesus, can't I break free from these relationships? Isn't that better? And so Peter's response is really interesting. He recognizes that there's this kind of a wise course of action here. I think of this less as a command and more of him providing some wisdom for the best path forward. Because he realizes that breaking free in each of these situations would have really big consequences for society. Because each of these structures, in their own way, promotes peace in the world around them. So government, for example. Now we know, obviously, that not all leaders or perfect leaders can be flawed. Peter isn't saying that every human leader who's ever lived was you know, specifically appointed by God to do his will. But what he's saying is government in general is a good thing. Government is better than anarchy. Having some kind of system of rule and leadership 
promotes peace and keeps things from devolving into chaos. And so government is one of the ways that God blesses people. And so his point isn't a, a for all time command, you can never disagree, especially when we think about this command in the context of our democratic world. This doesn't mean we can't peacefully protest or voice our objections to government decisions. But what he's reminding believers is that in their context, submitting to government has a large societal value. It's simply a good, wise practice to submit. Right? Like, think about if every Christian, everyone who came to Christ, all of a sudden was like, I'm not obeying anyone. I don't have to obey my governor. I don't have to obey my emperor. I don't have to obey, you know, the people who are enforcing laws. Obviously, that would create conflict that would hurt people, that would create a really broken society. And more importantly, think about how this would reflect on God. This would completely confirm people's suspicions that Christians were a bunch of rabble-rousers and troublemakers. It would certainly lessen believers' witness in the world. Why would I want to join the cause of these people who are leading to the breakdown of society? So he's saying, what good does it do you or the kingdom if people think you're a bunch of anarchists? So instead, when possible, try to live under the established order. Try to go with the flow of society for the sake of peace. That means don't be confrontational or rebellious in the name of Jesus unless it's absolutely necessary. Don't feel the need to always push your agenda in a way that's divisive. Instead, be humble. Do what you can, take what you can, in order to promote peace. And on top of that, he says, hey, listen, instead of disobeying, if, if you really want to think about how to apply your faith in the, in the you know, secular world around you, why don't you just focus on doing good? The language he uses here is kind of related to this idea of public benefaction, that people would kind of use their resources to uh, do some kind of public work for the city. You know, the equivalent of like, you know, building a, a, new, a new building at the university, or, or fixing a bridge, or fixing the roads, or whatever. And they would be honored by governing authorities for doing this. Now, this isn't the only thing, but it gives us a sense of what Peter's talking about. Do something for the good of this secular world around you. Build things up. I mean, in a way, it's like he's saying, hey, instead of making a fuss about your loyalty to Jesus, just go out and be loyal to Jesus. Do good, be humble, bless people. That's the best way to do it. Peter then changes gears from the public sphere to the private sphere. He says not only should you promote peace in the, the world around you, but you should promote peace in your home as well. As slaves to unbelieving masters, wives to non-Christian husbands, they were facing these same kind of questions. Like, should I stop serving my master? Because my true master is God, should I run away? Should I leave my non-believing husband so that I can you know, really focus on my faith, so that I can be undivided in my loyalty to God? And Peter, again, gives them a word of wisdom. He says, hey, consider what your actions will say about Jesus, what your actions will say about the church, and what this would mean for the world around you. Again, if every Christian slave revolted, every wife left her unbelieving husband, that would have some pretty serious consequences for society. 
And so he's not saying that wives and slaves can never disagree or never have any autonomy, but he's saying in general, do what you can, take what you can take to preserve peace in your home. If possible, live within the established order. As a slave, what does goodness look like for you? It means working hard, be diligent, be the best slave you can be, even if you're mistreated. As a wife, focus on inner virtue. Allow Christ-like character to define you. He's not saying you can never wear earrings or never do your hair nice for all time, for all believers, but he's saying, hey, here, here's how you show Christ in your marriage. Impress upon your masters, impress upon your husbands that this is what you're about. Now, really quickly, let me just come back to this issue of over-applying. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's important. Peter is speaking to a very different system of slavery than the one that we've known in our country. It's not an ideal, but it's different. And he's also speaking into a very different marital context. And so again, we have to be as clear as possible here that Peter is not upholding or justifying oppression and abuse. He's not commanding outright obedience in every situation, no matter what. When we read a passage like this, we have to be really sure, really clear that Peter isn't saying that there's never a time to speak out. He's not telling oppressed people and struggling wives that they always have to suffer in silence. We can't ever use these passages to justify mistreatment, and we should be very cautious about telling anyone, hey, just suck it up. You got to deal with it. Peter says so. See, Peter is looking at a much broader question. Again, as a general rule, in your relationships with non-believers, how can I pursue peace and order over conflict and division? How can I choose humility over getting my way? How can I go with the flow when necessary, when it doesn't conflict with my devotion to God? So that the church appears to be this, this uplifting good part of society. Now, this doesn't mean that we should conform to the world's practices, but it does mean that living to please God does not give us free reign to be divisive or hostile or condescending to non-believers. And really, our, our freedom in Christ doesn't give us free reign to push back on every single thing in the world that isn't biblical. Following Jesus isn't an excuse to just constantly tell others what to do and how to live. See, our goal is not to shape the world around us to Jesus' image. Our goal is to shape our own lives to Jesus' image and let that change the world around us. Scott McKnight says this, The entire sweep of the Bible teaches that Christians in non-Christian environments are not to be worried so much about changing their environments as they are to remain faithful in whatever kind of environment they find themselves. Now, this isn't to say that Christians can't be concerned with social change. Doesn't mean we can't work to make our institutions better. It doesn't mean that we can't loudly and boldly proclaim the gospel or call out sin and injustice. But it does mean that our primary mode of interaction with the non-believing world, our first choice when it comes to how we interact with people, 
Our primary way of revealing God's glory is an internal spirit of humility and a genuine desire to do good for all people. It means that even more than pushing Christian values, we have to live Christ-like virtues. Now the question obviously is, what does this mean for us today? Just for a second, try to imagine this kind of world, if, if you can. Try to imagine a world where people dislike Christians, where people are suspicious of our motives, where we are viewed as judgmental and hypocritical and divisive, where people suspect that we are some overzealous cult trying to overthrow secular society. It's impossible to imagine, right? No, of course not. That is literally the world we live in. The reality is what the world has seen from the church far too often is a push for a Christian agenda without a deep commitment to living like Jesus. And look, that is probably not your fault. But that is the way it is. And so for our context, one of the things that we have to do, we have to work extra hard to do, is to push against this perception. Speak and live in a way that changes how people see us. We have to live with a deep sense of humility. We have to be cautious, so cautious about being divisive, about being judgmental, about being pushy. We have to live with a genuine desire to do good for all kinds of people, not just the people who are like us or the people who we like or the people who, who, who like the things that we do, but the people who are most sinful, the people who are most opposed to Jesus' way of living, to the people who are most critical of us, to want to do good for them too. At the end of the day, we have to live every moment and every relationship in light of this larger purpose, to recognize that every relationship, both the good and the bad, is an opportunity to bring glory to God and make others see him in a new way. See, here's the thing. Peter's point, and one of the, the big points he wants to make in this letter is, you cannot avoid the consequence of your conviction. You have a new life, a new way of living. You are going to do things that provoke a response. But if you're going to face consequences for being a Christian, make sure you're doing everything you can to provoke the right responses. Be the right kind of provocative. This is exactly his point later in chapter 3, one of the most memorable verses in 1 Peter. He writes, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Be devoted to Jesus. Love him. Build your life upon him. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right? He's saying your life lived correctly, devoted to Jesus, it should provoke questions. It should make people wonder about you. Man, what's up with those Christians? But instead of doing things that make people say, man, why do Christians act the way they act? It should make them say, man, why, why do they act the way they act? What's different? What's there? Why are they so humble? Why are they so good? Why are they so loving? whenever possible, whenever you can. This is not the exception. This is the rule. 
Live in such a way that people see Jesus in you and want to know more about him. Now, I think there's a tremendous amount of, of hope in this, and this is what Peter points us to. Because he does acknowledge there still might be consequences. People are still going to reject you and, and probably mock you. But the hope that he hints at is this. If you suffer for doing good, if you suffer for a commitment to living like Jesus, I bet you can live with that. I bet that God will provide for you in special ways because of that. I bet your community will show up and support you in ways that you can't even imagine. And I bet your conscience will be clear. You'll find hope even in this suffering because you know you've chosen the pathway of Christ. Because you know that this suffering has purpose. And that's part of the living hope that Peter invites us to. Let's pray together.